Revelation chapters 6 and 7. Now before we read these two chapters, let me just set the scene a little bit. You can't just land in Revelation, this kind of literature, without a little bit of background. You see the first heading on the inside of the service sheet, the setting. Just stand back with me for a second and look at the book of Revelation as a whole. It is very different from much of the rest of the Bible. It's apocalyptic. It's visions and symbols and pictures. For some of you that'll be interesting and refreshing and you'll just get it. Your mind will be wired this kind of way. For some it might appear a little odd. With apocalyptic literature It's not difficult, just different. The word revelation encourages us. Revelation means make clear what is unclear. Explain what is confused. Why was this book, the last book of our Bibles, inspired to be written? Well, primarily to encourage Christians, to encourage churches as they work out their salvation, living out their faith, in the last days. The last days means the time between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. How does it encourage us as a book? What's its big message? I have a lot of Bible commentaries on Revelation. The best one is a little one by a man called Richard Buse, who used to be minister of All Souls Church in London. The title of his little commentary the Lamb or Jesus wins. That's the message of Revelation in a nutshell. It doesn't look like nor feel like in our lives very often or in the world that God is in control. It doesn't look or feel like very often, if we're honest, that the Lord Jesus really does reign It doesn't look like or feel like often that God is in control of my life as a Christian. But he is. Every second of it. God is in control. Therefore, trust in him. That is the message of Revelation. Now, let's just focus in a little bit more. Chapter 4 to 16, the middle section of the book, what we get in this central section is an overview of history, of world history, from God's perspective, or from the perspective of the one who controls it all. It's how things really are. And the way these central chapters work, 4 through 16, is they survey history from four different camera angles. You want to imagine in the middle of this room, there's some event going on, and there are four cameras positioned round the room. Each one of these cameras captures the same event from a different perspective. And that is what is happening in these central chapters. We're going to look at camera one. That's chapters six and seven. Last thing to say before we plunge in is what precedes chapter six and seven. What precedes this overview of world history? Chapters four and five. What do they say? Chapter 4, just look at it in your Bible. 
It's a vision of God on his throne. That's why we sang at the beginning, Behold your God, seated on his throne. Behold your God, seated on his throne. Now, chapter 4, and beside him, chapter 5, the Lamb of God, beside him on his throne. That's the risen, ascended, reigning Jesus, to whom has been given all power, majesty and authority. God on his throne, the Lamb beside him on his throne, worthy is the Lamb. And if we read chapter 5, you would see that in the hands of Jesus there is a scroll sealed with seven seals. That scroll contains the revelation of world history. It's in the hands of the Lord Jesus. That's significant because history is in his hands. That's the point. God is in control. And then we read 6 and 7, which is the unfolding of this scroll. The Lord Jesus reveals what is happening. You've got to pay attention. This is different, but it's fantastic stuff, as you'll see when we read it. Let's read 6 and 7. I watched as the Lamb, that's Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked in there before me with a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out of fiery red wine. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had, had been completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every man hid in caves and among the rocks on the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or in any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. 
Verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asked me, those in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, They are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Well, that's great stuff, Revelation. Exciting literature. Let's try to get our heads around it together. Now, you'll see the second heading on the service sheet, the seven seals. Now, the whole of chapter 6, and uh, again, right at the beginning of chapter 8, describe the opening of the scroll, or the opening of the seven seals as the Lord Jesus unravels history from the perspective of heaven or from those who control it. Now, look with me first at the first four seals. You'll see them in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6. And they create for us one united or unified impression, often referred to by Bible commentators as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen. Switch on your television or go online or look at what is happening in the world anywhere and what you will see is the activity, in essence, of these four horsemen riding out through the world. Look at it today, look at it in history and you'll see their activity. Firstly, the white horse, horse one, is bent on conquest. The second horse, the fiery red one, verses 3 and 4, well, its rider holds a huge sword and he is given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other, war and bloodshed. Seal 3, the rider on the black horse, well, this rider brings economic hardship to the world. He holds a pair of scales in his hand. His principle of distribution is unfair and unjust quart of wheat for a day's wages, that uh, means economic hardship borne by many. And uh, it's not difficult to see the effects of this rider in our world today. Famine or economic inequality or a financial crisis or the economically prosperous West and the economically exploited two-thirds world. And seal four, seven to eight, the rider on this pale horse is death. Uh, the word translated pale horse means the colour 
of dead flesh. It's a, a pretty gruesome image. And that rider brings death by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. And uh, he, in a sense, encapsulates all of the evil done by the riders that have been called um, out. Death, in the end, is the result. Now, what these riders symbolise is just the world we live in. Conquest and war and bloodshed, inflation and famine and death. Every year uh, at Christmas, we have a review of the year. And uh, uh, in a sense, I could put up as the first slide on the review of the year. Here we go again, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) But I don't. But that's what we see, isn't it, every year? doesn't change ever, does it? Now, the difficult question here, and it is a difficult question, what if you notice in the text, there's a word that runs right through it, and the word is come. Who says come? Who says come out and go into the earth? The angelic beings, the divine beings say come. The divine beings are, in a sense, calling out these horsemen into the world. What does that mean? Well, It does not mean that God is the author of evil. He is not. God does not create evil and sin. That is the work of Satan. But what these verses are saying is something very striking and very important. And that is that God is sovereign over evil. Listen to this description from a Bible commentator. The fact that terrible things emerge from the destiny scroll in Christ's hands signifies that nothing not even intrinsically evil things, can escape his control or occur outside his permission. Nothing is independent of God's authority. Nothing escapes his permission. And so the rider on the white horse is given a crown. The second rider is given a sword. Power only because of God's permissive will. If that is a hard truth for us to accept, and it is hard, I think, for us to get our heads around that, a good thing to do, I think, is to think of the opposite or the alternative, that God is not absolutely in control over evil, over famine, over war, over disease, over bloodshed, over economic hardship. What is the alternative? Well, in the end of the day, the alternative is that God is not God, that he is not sovereign. There is always divine restraint. Now, the fifth seal, 9 through 11, is of Christian martyrs who have been slain, verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony they have maintained. They are found wearing white robes, verse 11, And they cry out, and it's a human cry, surely, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? You might cry sometimes, how long, O Lord? These people here, in verses 9 to 11, really have the right to cry, how long, O Lord? In John's day, when this revelation was given, there were Christian martyrs. In the 20th century in the world, there were more Christian martyrs than the previous 19 centuries combined. We have, at the back of the church, Barnabas Fund literature that speaks of the persecuted church. Take it, read it, and pray for people like this. And then, 
the sixth seal, 12 through 17, the day of judgment, when the Lord Jesus returns and the wrath of God is poured out on all people who have not believed through history. We get a glimpse of what that day will be like and what a warning it is. These are very sober verses. 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky and so on. And verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man. In other words, it's indiscriminate. Rich, famous, poor, infamous, men, women, black, white, through all of history, all who have not believed, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, God, and from the wrath, the judgment of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can Stand. On Judgment Day, all those who have not believed will face the wrath of God. It's a frightening sight of a day to come when Jesus comes. Now, I wonder when I read verse 12, if the description of the wrath of God being poured out on those who do not believe reminded you of anything. The darkness, the earthquake, Listen to verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black. Listen to Matthew. Darkness came over all the land. The earth shook with an earthquake. And the rocks split. That's striking. There are two judgment days in history. The day at the end of time when all those who have not believed will face the judgment of God and Calvary, the day his son faced his wrath that we might be spared. For those who believe in Jesus, the wrath of God satisfied at Calvary. One of the modern worship songs we sing has a very powerful line, Jesus took the blame and bore the wrath, and therefore we stand forgiven at the cross. And that is a very wonderful thing. But for those who have not believed, for those who refuse, the wrath of God will not be spared them. Whether you are a king, a prince, a slave, a free man, mighty or ordinary, a professor or an undergraduate student, a minister or a member, it makes no difference. Without faith, we will face the everlasting wrath of God and there is nowhere to hide. How challenging that is. And yet how inviting the gospel is. You need not face that judgment day because Jesus faced that judgment day then. Verse 17, the great day of their wrath has come who can stand. There are verses written in Scripture that uh, cry out to the preacher to stop and just read the words again. Who can stand? Or can you 
stand? The answer of the Gospel is you can by the blood of the Lamb if you trust in him as your Saviour and your Lord. One or two of you here, maybe only one or two of you, will remember a man called John Harker. Um, John had an illness that meant he was in a wheelchair. And he came into church on a Sunday here. I was Victor's assistant ten years ago. And he came in and told me at the door that he'd come to shake his fist at God. And he did. He sat there in the front of the service. And he, he, you could just visibly see him antagonistic against God. Victor decided it would be a good idea if I met with John and read the Bible with him. So I did and got to know him well over the months. And one day in church, in the middle of Revelation 6 and 7, at these words, who can stand, he was converted in his own testimony. And the fist, in a sense, opened up to the gospel. And he lived as a Christian and then died of a brain tumour quite quickly, safe. That's the reality of this. Who can stand? The righteous. Can you? Chapter 7 focuses on the security of the righteous. The righteous are described in chapter 7 as those sealed by the blood of the Lamb. Notice that word, seal again. Jesus alone can break the seals to reveal history. Jesus alone can seal us as part of that redemption history. Verse 2 of chapter 7, the angel comes up from the east to the seed of the living God. The great angel of grace, he is referred to elsewhere in Revelation, almost certainly the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, verse 4, puts a seal on their foreheads. Apocalyptic literature is a little bit like uh, kind of Dungeons and Dragons or Harry Potter. I was reading Revelation last night. My children said, Daddy, it's like Harry Potter. I said, it's not. <laughs> you know, Harry Potter's got a mark on his forehead. Every Christian has a seal on their life by the blood of the Lamb. Who is sealed? Three references in the text. Verse 3, the servants of God. Verse 4, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then at the beginning of verse 9, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language. That's apocalyptic literature. That's how it works. You get these different ways of saying the same thing. The servants of God 144,000 of them and a great multitude from every tribe, nation, people, language group in the world that no one could count. Now what is going on here? It's the same group. Put together in your minds 144,000 and a great multitude that no one could count. Put these two ways of describing this reality side by side and what do they convey? On the one hand, vastness and on the other hand, exactness. That's the purpose of these numbers. It's so vast that you and I could not even take it in given our limited horizons. But it's so exact 
that God knows every single one by name. That's why the Lord Jesus will say uh, on Judgment Day, my Father, not one of them is missing. Now, the vastness and the exactness of God reflects in all of his attributes and his character, his vastness of power and yet his care for us. The vastness of his knowledge and yet that unnerving and wonderfully comforting fact that he knows every single one of our thoughts. He even knows if your mind is 100 miles away from Revelation at this moment. And now it's back on Revelation. (laughs) See how Revelation gives us confidence in our God. What does it mean to be sealed now if you're sitting here? It means as a church family or as individual believers we are absolutely safe. Nothing can harm us. If you are feeling the effect of living in a fallen world, maybe serious illness or even death, if you are sealed, you are safe. If you're crying out in desperation, how long, O Lord? Even if your cry, how long, was nothing like the cry of the martyr, it may still be real to you in your own life in a different way. Remember that God is on his throne. The Lord Jesus reigns in glory. He may not remove your pain, but he will remove your doubt that he cares. You rest in him. Whatever it looks like, whatever it feels like, God is in control of our lives. That's what it means to be sealed. And it gives over to praise. The praise here in Revelation. Striking that so many of our worship songs come out of Revelation. We're not meant to sing this until we're in glory. They're singing this on resurrection morning in the new creation. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So should we sing this now? Yes. Why? Because our status then is guaranteed now. What we'll sing on that day, we can sing now because we are sealed by the blood of Jesus. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then... Later on, amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks and honour, power and strength, be to our God forever and ever. We sing these a lot, don't we, these songs? Salvation belongs to our God. Be to our God forever and ever and ever. What would really help us sing them is if we sung them in the context of Revelation. Where do these songs occur? They occur off the back of the end of Revelation 6. Who can stand? Praise to God forever and ever. Because of Jesus, we can stand. And of course, being sealed in Jesus means we can look forward to a glorious future. A glorious future inheritance in the new creation. What a prospect that is, verse 15. They who are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. We don't feel the resonance of these words like others in our world will. Some really will. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water. 
And then a phrase that occurs often in Revelation, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, without any sentiment in a verse like that, that's a brilliant, brilliant verse to show you the anatomy of God's mind. This mighty sovereign God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Isn't that astonishing? The eternal home of the righteous, you're placed there guaranteed if you have been sealed by the blood of Jesus. I mentioned to you earlier the little book on Revelation with the title, Jesus Wins. That's it, Revelation, trust him. If I was to capture the message of Revelation, indeed the message of the Bible in a nutshell, it would be this, fear God. Fear God and you have nothing to fear. Fear him and you have nothing to fear. Leave this church knowing him through Jesus and you have nothing, nothing to fear. And we come, verse 1 of chapter 8, to the end of it all, the end of history. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Half an hour is just an apocalyptic way of expressing the find perfect time. Silence in heaven. One of the things we don't do well, I think, in our culture, perhaps, in church, is ever have silence. It's almost like God, inspiring this book of Revelation, says to the preacher, when all is said and done, when the word of God is spoken, when the word of God has been proclaimed, just take a time for a moment to be silent and allow people to contemplate their eternity. Who can stand the wrath of God, the righteous? How can you be counted amongst the company of the righteous through the blood of Jesus who bore the wrath of God that you might be forgiven? If you're not a Christian, what an opportunity like John Harker to trust Jesus. If you are, sing these worship songs with a new sense of thanksgiving. And if you're thinking now of brothers or sisters or flatmates or parents or grandparents or grandchildren who are not Christians, remember, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is in his hands. So let's pray that by his grace and mercy he will open their hearts. Let's pray. Loving Father, in just a moment of silence, we contemplate these eternal matters and these stark and sober words at the end of chapter 6, who can stand against the wrath of God? The answer, Lord, wonderfully in the Gospel, is that every single one of us can stand against your wrath 
because Jesus Christ, your Son, stood in our place and took the blame and bore the wrath that we might stand forgiven at the cross. If we are not yet safe in Christ, Lord Jesus, help us to take that step of faith now and to turn to the Lord Jesus with repentant hearts, seeking his forgiveness, and finding that forgiveness through his death, and life through his resurrection, and the confidence that we now stand in the company of the righteous, sealed by the blood of Jesus, with a guaranteed everlasting inheritance. If we have made that step, May we sing in praise and thanksgiving with a renewed sense of understanding of what it all means. And for those, Lord, of us here who have now in our minds people who are not Christians, perhaps people who are very close and dear to us, help us to remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. We speak the truth to them. And in your mighty power, power that is beyond our ability to fathom. And yet, in your individual concern for people, may you be pleased in your grace and in your mercy to work out salvation in their lives for your glory. We covet them for salvation and pray that you would be merciful to any such. And Lord, help us now to sing with thanksgiving. In Christ alone, my hope is found, that solid ground of salvation. And help us to do it with the spirit of thanksgiving that these great truths merit. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.